Well, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to echo what uh, Mark said earlier and wish uh, all of our moms a, a happy Mother's Day uh, and to uh, all of the, the grandmothers as well uh, and to future mothers. Uh, and uh, we, we thank you and appreciate you not just uh, today, uh, but each and every day for all that you do uh, to take care of us. And uh, may uh, your husbands and your children uh, rise up and call you blessed uh, and may they serve you uh, today uh, later on. But as we gather together uh, in worship this morning, it's my pleasure to continue in our study uh, in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, open uh, there with me. And uh, as you're, you're turning there, there are uh, a few occasions in which a, uh, a television show can perfectly capture uh, human nature. Uh, for instance, there's uh, one episode of a uh, television show, Frasier. Uh, in which uh, the radio station that Fraser works for hires uh, this very uh, attractive doctor uh, to lead a- another show there at the, the radio station. And over the course of the, the episode, Fraser's jealousy towards this man grows and grows uh, because this, this guy's very handsome and good looking. And then Fraser begins to search for some way that he is better than this guy. He searches high and far and wide to, to just to find one little area where he is better than him. Because in his comparison, he feels that he continues to fall short. And so over the course of the episode, we, we see that this, this uh, doctor, not only is he uh, handsome and he's a good cook and he's well-educated and all of these things. And then uh, Fraser's getting more and more frustrated. And at the end of the show, he, he finally figures out one little thing that he is better at, at than at this doctor and and then it it's ironic because it the, Fraser at the end is, is he's just so smug and, and he's so happy because he found that one little area even though this 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 guy is is brilliant and well-rounded and and honorable Fraser just he wasn't satisfied and was completely jealous of him until he found one little way that he was better I don't know about you guys but uh that resonated within me because I'm so guilty of that. Uh, as an athlete, I used to do that all the time. Of, okay, well, maybe I'm faster. No, he's faster than me. Okay, well, maybe I can do this or do that. We, we always do this game of one-upsmanship uh, in our own hearts, in our own minds. Uh, and we are all guilty of it from one degree or another because comparing ourselves is a common human practice. And if we compare ourselves to others and we conclude that they are better than us. Yeah, we, we search for at least some way that we are better than them. And if we compare ourselves and we find that we are better than them, it just feeds our own pride, even as it did for Fraser. Uh, and so these are the, the two common sinful responses of comparison. It either drives jealousy or it drives pride. Uh, in either way, uh, Christ is not exalted, but but we are. Man is. And when we we come to John chapter 3 this morning, now, where we're going to land is verses 22 to, to 30. And this is a, a different scene than what we have covered in, in the past. Uh, the, the narrative switches from what we have seen in, in weeks gone by from a conversation with, with Jesus and Nicodemus shifts over to, to John the Baptist, who we've already seen in uh, John's gospel. And what we see here in uh, this portion of Scripture is that Jesus has presented himself in, the, in Jerusalem. He's cleared the temple. He, he's taught. Uh, he's performed many miracles in the city. Uh, he's had this conversation with Nicodemus about the nature of salvation. 
And then he goes out into the wilderness of Judea and he begins to minister. He begins to teach and baptize. And the crowds are coming to him in droves. And not just a short distance away, John the Baptist is doing the same. Uh, He's still there ministering. He's still there teaching and baptizing. What we're going to see is that this is a passing of the baton in this passage. Uh, That that after this portion, uh, John the Baptist is going to fade out of John's gospel. He's not going to be mentioned again. So what we have here are the final words of John the Baptist in this uh, version of the gospel. And he's going to be passing the baton to Christ. He's going to be saying, Jesus is the one who is going to take things from here. Uh, His words uh, in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. They are great and amazing words. They are fitting words uh, from the mouth of a prophet of God, and they are really a confession of every person who follows Christ. That should be our confession, that Christ must increase and I must decrease. But there's a context to them, and that's what I would look, like to look at with you all today. So please read along with me, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What we see here in this passage is that as Jesus' public ministry got started, he, he grew in popularity, he grew in influence. And what that prompted among the disciples of John was jealousy, was pride. So they come to John the Baptist and say, hey, don't you see what's taking place here? And the person that you bore witness about is stealing your thunder. What are you going to do about that, John? John the Baptist is tempted by his own disciples here to rise up against Jesus the Messiah. And what's amazing is that in the middle of this temptation, which we would all understand and identify with, is John's response. Because his response is a picture of humility. A picture of how we should respond to this temptation of comparing ourselves to others. How we are to battle against this temptation towards jealousy and pride. And as we look at these verses, we see John the Baptist, but we also see what we are to be as Christians. 
as those who follow Christ, we are to be pictures of humility, first and foremost, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. That's what we are called to be. We are called to reflect the character of Christ. But the English poet John Selden wrote, Humility is a virtue all men preach, none practice, and yet everybody is content to hear. That's right. We all love the idea of being humble, but we don't like the idea of humbling ourselves. That's not as much fun. And as Christians, we know that we should be humble, and yet it doesn't make it any easier to do so. We all struggle with pride uh, on a regular basis, and if you don't think that you struggle with pride, you're being prideful about that, uh, and I would have to rebuke you and correct you. But uh, we may outwardly be humble, but inwardly, we can always be prideful. Now, there's a a character in a, a comedic opera uh, who says, uh, you've no idea what a poor opinion I have of myself and how little I deserve it. Uh, and yet what we see here in John the Baptist, what we see here is somebody who is not just outwardly humble, but who is inwardly humble. And what we see here is true and genuine humility. And so what what I'd like to look at this morning is you can really divide this, this narrative in two portions. Uh, the first portion in verses 22 to 26 is you have the normal temptations of jealousy and pride. Uh, and the, the second part of this narrative is what we would see that the noble attitudes of true humility. That's where John responds to his own disciples coming and tempting him. But let's look first at... That first portion, the normal temptations of jealousy and pride. And in verse 22, it just says, after this, we see that time has passed since Jesus has been in Jerusalem. And it, we don't know exactly how much time. It may have been up to six months uh, that this has been going on. That Jesus and John are out in the wilderness ministering, having parallel ministries of teaching and baptizing. And their disciples are there with him. And what we see is that Jesus is out in the countryside teaching and baptizing. John chapter 4 verse 2 clarifies that Jesus is not doing any of the baptizing, that he's delegated that to his disciples. He's the one doing the teaching and they're the ones doing the baptizing. And in verse 23, we see that not a, a short distance away at Anon near Salim is John the Baptist with, again, almost an identical ministry. And in verse 24, we see this short statement that all of this is taking place because John had not yet been put into prison. And that little statement, it seems like, well, of course he's, he hasn't been put in prison yet. He can't be baptizing and in prison at the same time. But what makes that little statement important is and it kind of within the chronology of the Gospels, it teaches us and shows us that what the other Gospels seem to imply is that, you know, John was, was uh, baptizing in the wilderness, and then as soon as he baptized Jesus, they kind of leave John the Baptist uh, in the dust and then just focus on him. And we kind of think that, oh, John just stopped doing what he was doing at that time. But no, it shows that John and Jesus had parallel ministries for a time. And, and that's why John's disciples are feeling like they're, these two ministries are competing against one another. As I said, it could have been six months of them both being out in the wilderness baptizing and the disciples of John keep seeing larger and larger crowds with Jesus and smaller and smaller crowds with John the Baptist, their master who they have attached themselves to as the one who is teaching them. And so they're getting discouraged. So they come to 
John with an issue. There had been a disagreement, a discussion in verse 25 with John's disciples and uh, a Jew uh, over a matter of purification. We don't know what this was, but it might have been that this Jew just asked, well, why should I be baptized by John the Baptist rather than by Jesus? And that probably would have sent uh, John's disciples into a tizzy. Right? What do you mean? How can you? So they, they bring this to John the Baptist. They bring this issue to him. And notice in verse 26, as they bring the issue, they don't even mention Jesus' name. They, they come and they just say, hey, the, the one who was with you across the Jordan and to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And we know that's an exaggeration. Because uh, in verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And the idea is that people continued to come, and they kept being baptized by John. And so wait a second, there's still a crowd of people following John, it's just not quite as big as the crowd of people following Jesus. And when the, when the disciples of John come and say, everybody's going to him, it's like, well, I think you're exaggerating there. I think you're blowing this out of proportion. And they're also revealing their own hearts, that their own hearts have grown jealous, that their own hearts had grown prideful and envious of the success of Jesus. And again, that's a, that's a common human experience, one that we always have to guard against because it, it crops up within us naturally. When I was in, in high school playing football, uh, football players are a little bit competitive, uh, and uh, my junior year I was having a, a decent season, and uh, I was one of the, the leaders in the, the city section of L.A. Uh, in quarterback statistics. And there was another quarterback in our league that we played against. Uh, and, and he was pretty good as well. And he and I were always kind of in, in the top of the leaders uh, in, whenever the, the L.A. Times would publish the high school statistics, when there was a physical newspaper. Do you guys remember those days? Uh, they, they would, every Thursday they would publish the statistics. And I would always compare myself to him. Now, I treated him as a rival, even though I'd never really met him or talked with him. Uh, some of my teammates knew him as well. Uh, and my, my teammates, like any uh, loyal uh, football player, they, they spoke trash to him on my behalf. Uh, so, so they began to feed into this rivalry that I already felt within my own heart. And they kind of threw gas on the fire to the extent that, uh, you know, by the end of my time in high school, I, I was very angry. And very bitter just towards this guy I'd never met. I treated him as a rival, like we were competing against each other in all of these ways. And I did that all on my own. And at the encouragement of my teammates. It's so easy for rivalries to rise up among us in our own hearts. Even among those who are Christians. Even those who are in ministry can grow bitter and jealous towards others because that's our sin nature. We're always tempted to compare ourselves to others. So we have to always battle against that in our hearts. And have you ever noticed that there are some people that you are tempted to always compare yourself to and there's others that you're really like, I'm I'm not that tempted. And usually we are most tempted to compare ourselves to people that we consider our peers. Right? See, I'm not tempted to compare my ministry to the ministry of John MacArthur <laughs> because 
he's significantly older and wiser. And you acknowledge those things. You tend to admire people who have gone before you and you look up to them. My temptation is not to compare my ministry to that of John MacArthur. My temptation is to compare my ministry to my classmates who are with me in seminary. To compare our church with their church. That's a temptation that I face. That's what John and his disciples face right now. And you may face a similar temptation with your peers. You may not be, be jealous and envious of your retired neighbor across the street, but the person who lives right next to you and who you see as an equal, that, that's the, the family that you're more likely to grow jealous of. Right? That, that mom who seems to have it all together, that you see on Instagram all the time, how does she do that? that that's where jealousy and pride and envy rise up those who we see as peers but we have to battle against that they are real temptations that we face all the time and these are temptations that can crop up within our own church as well so easy becomes second nature so to speak and that's why we're looking at the passions in uh in Galatians with the youth ministry on Wednesday night, Galatians 5, you're familiar with uh, the fruit of the Spirit and how we are called to not live according to the deeds of the flesh, but to put on the fruit of the Spirit. What's amazing is how that chapter ends. <clears throat> it says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're like, yeah, how does that happen? Well, because as Christians, we can even become envious of those who seem more spiritual than us. We can begin to to take a good thing, desiring the fruit of the Spirit, and turn that into a sinful desire. And if we become, begin to envy others uh, who seem to be faithful in that area. So we always must guard ourselves against this, of comparing ourselves to others. Either to make ourselves look better and to grow prideful, or out of envy and jealousy because we feel that someone else is uh, greater than we are in a particular area. John's disciples were inviting him to a pity party, inviting him to come and commiserate with him, saddened by the success of Jesus' ministry. And they appealed to John's pride. But what's amazing is, again, John's response is one of absolute humility. Now, understanding, hey, he's not going to give in to, he's not going to even begin to go down that, that path of trying to compare himself with Jesus. And, and in his response, the second portion of this passage, what we're going to see is the noble attitudes of true humility. And what's going to be demonstrated in this is, is four of these attitudes, four attitudes of, of true humility. And the first is going to be seen in verse 27. And we could, we could phrase it like this, that true humility trusts the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verse 27. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And he's very specific with his words here. Very specific and very emphatic. Because uh, he uses a double negative, which in English makes it a positive. But in, in the Greek, it makes it even more emphatic. It is not possible for man to receive not one thing except it has been given to him from God. He's echoing what other parts of Scripture say. James 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Now, earlier this morning in our equipping hours, talking about financial stewardship, and we've talked about everything that we have belongs to God. Nothing belongs to us. And John is taking that principle and applying it to his own ministry, saying, look at the ministry that I have. What I do have is only a gift of God, and I don't have anything else beyond that because God hasn't given it to me. John's ministry is shrinking. Jesus' ministry is growing. And John's attitude is just, hey, if God wanted me to have more, I would. And if God wanted Jesus to have less, he would. But God's plan is not for me to have more, but for Jesus to have more. For Jesus to rise. He must increase. I must decrease. John understood that he had exactly what was given to him by God and nothing more. And the humble person, true humility, does not reach beyond what has been allotted to them, what has been given to them. We don't grasp at what doesn't belong to us. And again, I think a great example of this in the Old Testament is Joseph. Wherever he was, he served faithfully. He was a very humble man. Again, whether it's in Potiphar's house, whether, whether it's in, uh, in prison there because he's been falsely accused, whether it's because he rises up over all of Egypt, he's still humble and he still rests and sees himself under the sovereignty of God. How do I know that? Well, think back to the end of Genesis when after the, the death of their father, Joseph's brothers come to him afraid for their lives because now that, that dad's out of the way, they feel that Joseph might exact retribution and vengeance upon them. So they, they approach Joseph, and Genesis 50 says this. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So even though Joseph is second in command over all of Egypt, even though there's only one person greater in this entire nation, which is probably the most powerful nation on the earth at that point in time, Joseph still sees himself as aligning under God. He still says, God is sovereign and my entire life experience needs to be interpreted according to that sovereignty. And he entrusted himself to God and demonstrated his humility. Elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What we see here is John the Baptist living out that verse, saying, I'm going to live under the mighty hand of God. I'm going to live under the sovereignty of God and leave the results up to God. I'm going to strive to be faithful in ministry, and whatever fruit comes, I know that it's a result of God. That is John's attitude here. That's as John is saying, this is not about me. This is, what, this is about what heaven has and has not given to me. John had that attitude that every measure of success that he had, anything and everything from his personality, his talents, his the fruit of his ministry, everything had come from the hand of God, that you cannot receive not one single thing that has not been given to you from heaven. So if that is the, the principle here, that true humility embraces, is that how we think of those things that we have in our life? Do we think of everything that we have, 
whether it be even even the immaterial things, our our intelligence, our athleticism, our our looks, anything and everything that we have in life, do we see and understand? Everything comes from the hand of God. See, it's one thing if we think that we attribute it to ourselves. What naturally happens? That pride just begins to rise. It's like a it's a balloon that naturally fills up, and then what needs to happen is every so often it needs to be popped. Right? And either we pop it ourselves or God, once it's grown too big, will pop it for us. Which one will be more painful? God. God humbling us by far. But John trusted in the sovereignty of God. And that's what we are called to do. To attribute all things that we have to Him. And that helped Him when temptation arose within His own heart and then outwardly from His disciples. And ultimately, John understood that all ministry is a mercy from God. It's not something to be earned or demanded. It's always a mercy. It's always a privilege to serve God. And the fruit of any person's ministry is determined by God. And that's, that's preaching to myself right there as well as to you. And all things come at the hand of God. And what we see here, as John appeals to God's sovereignty, we see that humility is the result of correct theology applied rightly. That when we see and understand who God is, the natural result is we become humble. That we grow downward in humility when we understand who God is and how he rules and superintends all things. True humility trusts in the sovereignty of God. And that's the first noble attitude that we see here from John. And the second is found in verse 28. where He says, true, you could say, true humility understands its God-given position. Look at me at verse 28. John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John points to what his disciples have already said that John has said in the past. He says, hey, disciples, you've all, you, you pointed to what I have already proclaimed and pointed to that Jesus is the Christ. And even though his disciples knew that John had pointed Jesus out as the Christ, here they are urging him to compete with the Christ. They're like, disciples, come on. What's going on? They want him to compete. But John says, no, I know my position. I know what God has called me to be and what he has not called me to be. His testimony, if you look back in John chapter 1, beginning verse 29, John's testimony is to point the nation of Israel to Jesus. Verse 29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is John's testimony. We look at verse 34, And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And again, that's what baffles me about the disciples of John. They've heard this. That they have heard John's testimony about Jesus. John has said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. And here, almost this satanic temptation, they're saying, hey, you can compete against this guy. You got this, John. You just got to try a little bit harder. What are you going to do about this? And it's heartbreaking because, again, you see the, the blindness of sin and what it does. But here what we, what we see in John's response is that he thinks rightly about himself. He thinks rightly about his own position. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here you have the disciples of John coming, in essence, trying to get John to deceive himself, trying to get John to think that he is something when he really is not. And, and again, this is, a, this is a common temptation for us all. We naturally uh, want to think that we are more and more important than anybody else. And the things that we are involved in naturally become more important uh, than anybody. What others are doing uh, more and more so. And that's why we have conflicts, because we value what we're involved with more than what somebody else is involved with. Uh, we value our importance and we elevate it beyond what it truly is. Now, there's a, a man in Second Samuel who's a great picture of this. Second Samuel 16.23 speaks of a man named Ahithophel. It's a cool name, right? 16.23 in Second Samuel says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. And what we see is that Ahithophel, when, when Absalom rebels against his father David, and there, there's a revolt uh, in the country, and David has to run for his life. He flees from Jerusalem. Absalom comes in, and Ahithophel is there to give counsel to King Absalom. And again, if you're Ahithophel, what are you used to happening once you give counsel? You're used to it being accepted. It says that his counsel was treated as if it was the word of God. Now, what's that got to do to your ego, right? And what's amazing is over the course of that chapter, God uses uh, somebody else to thwart Ahithophel. Ahithophel gave good counsel to Absalom, but God used somebody else to give bad counsel, and then Absalom followed the bad counsel. And then 2 Samuel 17:23 says this, When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed... He saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. There's a man who thinks too highly of himself, who thinks too highly of his own counsel, that when he's not listened to one time, what does he do? Goes and commits suicide. But that's what pride does. We naturally esteem ourselves high, more highly than we should. But a humble person, true humility, will never seek to make much of himself. He will never seek to exalt himself because he understands that whatever position he is in is exactly where God wants him to be. And again, going back to the story of Joseph, uh, did Joseph have to search out promotions no, actually, he had to search out people to sin against him because what happened is every time someone sinned against him, that ended up elevating him. But Joseph always said, hey, this is exactly where the Lord wants me. This is where I'm going to serve faithfully. And that is exactly what he did. And John understood that same reality. John understood he wasn't the Messiah. These guys, look, I've told you once, I'll say it again. I'm not the Christ. I'm the one who points to that guy. I'm not him. He's far more important. And this should be the mindset of each one of us. That we are not who is most important. The world, the universe does not revolve around us. 
Christ is most important. We are here not to point to ourselves, but to point to others. And I, and I would just say that there is a there there is a, a very unique and, and special temptation that accompanies ministry, and it is to do exactly this: it is to grow followers to yourself rather than towards Christ. You want to begin to to feel that people are trusting and following you rather and, and the the temptation grows that way and, and what 's amazing is you can always tell when that takes place because inevitably that church or that ministry crumbles and, and it falls, and how it falls is because that individual that charismatic leader who who drew, drew followers to himself and made it a cult of personality when he stumbles into sin. Everything falls. It becomes the house of cards. But when, when true ministry is being conducted, you are pointing people to Christ. And when there's, uh, when there's something taking place uh, that, that maybe the leader falls or stumbles, the, the ministry carries on because everybody has become a disciple of Christ, not a disciple of that specific individual. Uh, and the, the person who is truly humble in ministry will rejoice Wherever Christ is taught, wherever Christ is proclaimed. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 1, you see the humility of the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, meaning envy and rivalry with the Apostle Paul, but others from goodwill. Because the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So that is a a genuine temptation to proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. But then verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul rejoices just simply that Christ is proclaimed. He's not trying to compete with others. Paul knows his position. It's a a great quote from from John MacArthur that pierced my own heart as I was studying this week. He says, this is the first law of ministry. Humility. Uh, A great ministry never produces disciples of the ministry. It always produces disciples of the Savior. You understand that. Foundational. Whenever the people worship the man, something is corrupt. When Christ is diminished and the ministers are elevated, you have Satan's church. Where you have Christ's church, the ministers never see themselves as anything other than equal to every other Christian. A sinner saved by grace, given gifts and a merciful stewardship from heaven that elevates them above no one. Hierarchy in the church is a corruption. And I would just echo that with all my heart. And as a pastor, I have a, a dual responsibility. I am, sh- I am both shepherd and sheep. Uh, and, and I need you as the church to hold me accountable, to be involved in my life. Uh, this is the importance and, and the temptation that is unique to ministry. Uh, and to all of those who, uh, not just as pastors, but every, any pastor, any elder, any growth group leader, anybody who's involved in ministry, will face this temptation of growing in pride and beginning to make disciples of themselves rather than disciples of Christ. But John the Baptist understood this and rejected any notion that he should compete against Christ rather than point to him. 
And that's true humility. True humility understands its position. And then thirdly, what we will see is that true humility will also rejoice in its God-given role. So it understands where God has placed them, and then humility finds joy and satisfaction in being exactly there. This is seen in verse 29. It says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So not only does, does John understand where God has him, but he rejoices. It's an, it's an emphatic joy. There. He rejoices with joy. Like, well, that's redundant. Yes. Uh, and that's the point. Uh, that, that, that John the Baptist rejoiced exactly where he was placed. And John says, he uses this, this illustration. He says, I'm the best man at a wedding. Uh, and at this point in time, in history and, and culture, uh, the best man was extremely important. He was the go-between between, between uh, the, the groom and the bride-to-be during the engagement period. The best man was the one who, who organized and superintended all of the details for the wedding that would take place uh, at the bride or the groom's house. Uh, so he, the, the best man superintends all of these details uh, and looks at them and, uh, and co- coordinates everything. And then he is the one who would lead the bride to the bridegroom's house. And he would be the one that would see the joy on the groom's face as they are married and and brought together. And what a joy that would be. And John the Baptist says, no, that's me. I'm the best man. I bring the people to Jesus. I bring the bride to the groom. I don't steal the bride. One of the things also within this illustration is... At this point in time, it was prohibited for the best man to ever marry the bride. If you took that role, you're saying, okay, she's, she's off limits for me. I think that's also one of the things that, that is involved here. And, and what we see is that, no, John, John is rejoicing at the success of Jesus. John is rejoicing to see people flocking to Christ. Again, the, the idea of rejoicing is emphatic here. And that his joy is now made complete. It is now filled to the brim. And uh, during this time of year, I, I enjoy watching the NBA playoffs. I don't you want to watch the regular season. That's boring. But the playoffs, that's when it gets real. Uh, and it, it, gets, it gets real because everything's on the line. And even though I love watching it, I also hate watching it because uh, during, in the playoffs, there are winners and there are a whole lot more losers. Because only one team wins the championship. And what's devastating is when a team is eliminated from the playoffs, they're not celebrating. Usually they're weeping. They're crying because they have been eliminated from contention. And yet here what you have is John the Baptist saying, I've been eliminated. My role is finished. Right? The best man has a role up to the point of the wedding. But then what does he do after the wedding? Nothing. His role is complete. John says, look, I'm done. I have done everything that the Lord has called me to do, and now I'm out of contention. And now, rather than weeping, he's rejoicing. He's out of it, but he's now saying, no, I I just need to continue to fade away. This is all about Christ from this point forward. And that is amazing to see the humility of John, to be able to rejoice at that rather than grieving the loss of his ministry. He rejoices in what 
is taking place with Christ. And it's a humble person who holds all things loosely, even his own ministry, and finds joy in the success of others. So those are the the first three attitudes of genuine humility. That they understand and trust the sovereignty of God. They understand God-given position. That true humility rejoices in its role that God has given. And then fourthly, what is probably the, the weightiest verse of this whole portion, and the, the shortest, the principle that we can draw out from verse 30 is that true humility desires for Christ to increase. True humility desires for Christ to increase. Those simple words, he must increase, but I must decrease. An amazing statement. So concise, it's harder to be clear and concise than it is to be wordy. Uh, and and it's, just, it's powerful when it's this short and this memorable. And there's such significance to this. We've, we've spoken in the past and looked at that little word for must. Uh, and it's a word loaded with theological significance. It's not just, hey, this, this has got to happen, right? No, this is, this is divine decree, this must happen. This is describing something that must take place because it has been ordained by God. I've seen this word twice already in John chapter 3, John 3, 7, where Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We've seen in, in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the same way that it was ordained that... People shall be saved by faith, by being born again by the Spirit. In the same way that it was ordained that Christ should be crucified and lifted up on the cross and exalted. In that same way, John says, it has been ordained for me to fade away and for Christ to be exalted. He has to grow bigger. I must grow smaller. And just kind of as a clarifying point, those two have to go together there's an inverse relationship here Uh, john can't increase and christ increase at the same time that's the emphasis you can think of it this way let's let's imagine we're in our uh, backyard uh, and the neighbor behind us has a fence uh, and uh, he's built an enormous seesaw okay Uh, and so the seesaw is so big that when one side of it is up we can clearly see who's up but we can't see because of the fence who's down that's the way this works Right? If Christ is exalted, you can't see us. You can't see John. But if John is exalted, if John is lifted up, who can't you see? Christ. And that is his point. That is what we must understand. It's going to be true for John, and it's going to be true for us. We can't exalt ourselves, because as soon as we exalt ourselves, Jesus disappears from sight. But if Jesus is put on display, if Jesus is lifted up, if Jesus grows bigger, then we disappear. We grow smaller. The the great missionary William Carey, on his deathbed, said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. And that needs to be our our heart, our, our attitude, our genuine desire is that no, we, need to, we need to grow smaller and smaller. 
We want to see Christ exalted. We want to see Christ grow larger in our own lives. We want to see his shadow uh, grow larger and larger over our lives and, and see less and less of ourselves. That is our desire. And there's, there's so much more to be said just about this, this single verse. Well, how do we do that? What does it look like for us to, to decrease and Christ to increase? How do I grow in humility? And A.W. Pink expressed it very clearly in, in these words. He says, Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with that one who was meek and lowly, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is the answer to how we grow in humility. That's the answer to how Jesus increases in our lives and we decrease. We look upon him more and more. And as he grows bigger and bigger, we naturally, by comparison, grow smaller and smaller. That is what we are called to. This is, this is a summary of the Christian life. This is a summary of the life of faith. I love... Uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in the book Prince Caspian by, by C.S. Lewis, there's a, an interchange between uh, Lucy and Aslan. And Aslan in this story is a, is a picture of Christ. And uh, Lucy, who last saw Aslan in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, she says, Aslan, you're, you're bigger. And Aslan's response is that, he says, that is because you are older, little one. And, and she questions, so it's not because you're bigger? No, I'm not. He says, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that is what we should see and experience in our own lives. Now, this is an ongoing process in our life. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and it's not a, a simple thing. But over the course of our years, over the years that we have walked with Christ, he should loom larger in our lives now than he ever has in the past. And if he looms larger, then we should be smaller. How do we know if Christ is larger? How do we know if he is increasing in our life? Well, do you look with him with greater, look to him with greater and greater trust each and every day? Or are you more and more controlled by fear and circumstances? See, if Christ is looming larger and larger, he's sovereign and supreme over your circumstances. So your faith increases, your trust increases, your anxieties decrease. The worries and cares of this world grow smaller and smaller because Christ is bigger. We speak more and more about him, not about ourselves, not what we have accomplished, not what we have done, but what he has done in our lives. We bear testimony to how he's transformed us, how he has carried us through each and every circumstance. We see his glory, his greatness, his faithfulness more and more. And I know just in my own life, it's just a, a blessing to reflect, is it not? Good to do that. To see his hand, even when we didn't realize it. And as we look at his faithfulness, 
That should just fuel our hearts. That should just force us closer and closer to him. That should be our desire. And may we strive to do that, not only today, but every day. May we strive to make Christ bigger. May we be ever more convinced that that is what needs to take place in our life. May Christ be big, and may we be small. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. You are the bright morning star, the son of David, son of Abraham, the one who has given his life on our behalf. You are the lamb slain who takes away the sin of the world. You are the son of God. Lord, we are convinced of these things, and that is why we gather to worship and praise you, to exalt you. Lord, I pray that, that you might use this time to grow bigger in our hearts. That you would loom larger, that every time we come to you, we say, Jesus, are you bigger today? Lord, you are as big as you will ever be in all your infinite glory and beauty. Lord, help us to behold that. And as we, as we see you, as we see our King in your beauty, Lord, may we grow smaller. May we decrease. May we see ourselves as lesser and lesser and see you as greater and greater. And Lord, may that be just upon our hearts and upon our minds. May you work in us. May you complete the good work that you have begun. Lord, we, we love you and we long to grow smaller. And Lord, we long to see others come to that same conclusion. Lord, we long to see others see you in your greatness, in your glory. So I pray that as we grow downward, that we would also go outward to proclaim who you are and what you have done to the world around us. Lord, put that upon our hearts. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth in all that we do. We ask in your precious and holy and lofty name. Amen.